Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Leverage and Beverage. I'm your host, Greg Sobosinski, and today we're getting back into it again with some other local businesses and how they've created leverage in the spaces where they work. Again, the goal of this podcast is to create leverage and to learn how to get from where we are in our businesses to where we want to go. Today, I have a special guest on, uh, Craig Caraco. Kakaro, there you go. <laughs> Did better than most. <laughs> it's simple, but you know you got to get it. You got to get it just right. Um, so uh, this is actually um, my second time talking with uh, Craig. Um, I bumped into him at his shop um, a couple weeks ago now, and he's got something really interesting going on. So um, before, let me maybe give a backstory real quick. So I, I saw this arcade. On, on the side of the road. And I was like, I got to check this out. I got to check this out and see what's going on in here. Um, it's not too often that you see arcades popping up. Um, it seemed to be a much more popular thing 15, 20 years back, maybe. Um, so I had to stop in. Got to talking with Craig. And that story is a lot of what you're going to hear today. Kind of some of the backstory, how we got to this point. Um, so Craig, how about you give us an, an intro here to, to yourself and maybe just some general information about you, and then we can get into some of your backstory. Yeah, hi, uh, my, my name is Craig Carroll. Uh, I own a humble arcade. It's called uh, Game on Arcade on Main Street in Medford. Uh, we've been here for just uh, just about three years now. Um, also a husband and father of two. Uh, my oldest is going off to college this summer, and my, uh, my youngest is going into high school next year. Awesome. So the arcade. What about the arcade speaks to you? I mean, like I said, it's not something you see too often. What is it? What is it? So, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid forties and, uh, you know, I've, I've been playing arcade games since, uh, geez, I must've gotten Atari 2600 when I was about five and a half years old. <laughs> and, uh, I've been playing games ever since. Um, you know, it's something that, uh, you know, I do for downtime and enjoyment. You know, it's funny. It's one of those things that, you know, you get a lot of people, if, if cable went out, you know, they, they'd be stir crazy in their own homes mm. in my house, uh, even with the kids, if that internet connection went offline, we'd be in trouble, but we barely turn the TV on other than the game. So, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it's what we do for entertainment, um, you know, and uh, it, it, it really helps connect, uh, you know, uh, myself to the, to the rest of my family and it helps me keep in touch with my friends. So how did you get into this? It sounded like from our first conversation, you were doing something else before and you made a transition into the space, I guess it was three years ago. Yeah. So uh, I was in IT for about 25 years, uh, worked in various industries, transportation, pharmaceuticals, uh, things of that nature. And, uh, you know, over time, the, uh, the pressure to do more with less, um, you know, uh, really led me to having some uh, heart issues. Um, so I had, uh, my first heart attack was probably about five years ago and, uh, you know, knew it was a stress related thing. I was working too many hours on call for way too much. Um, you know, said, okay, you know, it is what it is. And, uh, you know, about two years later, I started having additional heart issues and, uh, sat down, had a, had a serious conversation with my wife about, okay, well, you know, um, I'm literally going to work myself to death if I stay where I am. Um, so, you know, we talked about it and said, you know, we, we can afford to take a, a step back um, income wise. Um, so, you know, I started uh, taking a look at, okay, what do I know? What do I want to do? What do I not want to do? Um, 
and really started taking a look around at uh, different opportunities and, you know, okay, what, what's important to me? What do I know? Um, and, you know, being a gamer myself, if I'm on vacation or I'm traveling, I always pop into an arcade, play a couple games of pinball or Donkey Kong, things like that. Um, so, you know, I started looking more around in that space and I saw a couple of business models that really looked like they were working well, um, you know, with this model. And basically the, the model that we operate under is, um, you know, we've got uh, old school classic arcade games, um, but we do not run off quarters or tokens. Um, we charge a flat rate per hour mm -hmm. and then uh, round it up to 15 minute uh, increments after that first hour. So you can try games that you've never played before without worrying about going through quarters too fast. Um, you know, especially depending on uh, where people are currently going for this entertainment, be it down the shore or um, wherever they might go. Uh, you know, games that operate. Uh, off a of single play now, uh, pinball machines, especially you're seeing, you know, dollar, two dollars a game. Um, so we tried to price ourselves so that mm -hmm. people, um, you know, can really see value. Um, they don't get, you know, upset or necessarily angry uh, if, if they lose quickly uh, because they know they've got how, however much time they want. Um, and, you know, I grew up in places like the one I own, uh, tried to model it after mm -hmm. some places that I loved growing up uh, when I was moving around the country. And uh, it really seems to, you know, speak to that inner child, I'll say for for us in our mm. 30s to 50 uh, yeah, yeah. year old space, um, you know, and just to to kind of kick the tires every once in a while and say, yeah, you know, I remember be, being a kid again and having fun. And, you know, when we go back to how did I get involved in this? You know, one of the themes that I kept on going back to was, you know, I, I, I want to. I want to see people smile. I want to see people having fun. Um, you know, being in corporate America, um, you know, I, I think that's not a place where a lot of people associate enjoyment, right? Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of people do it for the paycheck. I know um, I did find enjoyment out of what I did, solving problems, things like that. But, you know, I won't say that I was uh, giddy uh, for 25 years in the <laughs> workspace. So, how? So let me talk about real quick. No heart issues since since you quit. Yes, that's correct. Wow. Do you think that's? I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Do you think that that is something that plagues a lot of people out there currently? You know what? Uh, so, <laughs> from a lifestyle perspective, I've never done it the way it was recommended. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, uh, from that standpoint, I was like, okay, you know, I'm paying the price for, you know, the wiles of my youth. You know. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, bad, bad lifestyle choices, smoking, uh, eating fast food, things like that. Um, but it really kind of surprised me. The longer um, that I have the opportunity to get to know my customers and really start to talk to each other, uh, the more I'm hearing people that are uh, overextended, stressed out, disenfranchised. I know uh, talking to my cardiologist, hmm. um, you know, and him, him telling me, you know, I, I'm seeing people now in their thirties, they're starting to have these issues. So I, I think, um, as time goes on, we've started to hit that breaking point for a lot of people and hopefully, um, you know, we can find a way collectively to get it back to where people can do the things that they're talented, um, in doing in, in such a manner that they're not sacrificing, um, themselves to do it. Right. And you brought something up earlier. That's a really good point. You said, um, you know, you, you really thought you took that time 
with your wife to think through not only what you wanted to do, but what you didn't want to do. You know oh, what I mean? Absolutely. And, absolutely. And, and I think that's a, that's a great point because I think sometimes people are so focused on this idea of what do I want to do? What do I want to do? Instead of going down the checklist and saying, okay, I can eliminate X, Y, and Z either for health reasons, for lack of interest, for whatever. But I think that's a good place to start for people who really aren't sure what direction they might want to go. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, you see uh, franchises being open, you know, all the time. And, you know, I, I started doing some research on that. And there are some definite advantages to going down that route. Uh, but I felt there were too many disadvantages for what I wanted to do hmm. uh, to get involved with the franchise operation, not to mention the fact um, that really a lot of these quote unquote more successful franchises happen to be happen to be uh, food based businesses. Mm -hmm. And uh, me personally, I enjoy eating food. I don't enjoy making it. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it was one of those things where if I were to do that, um, it definitely wouldn't be a labor of love, right? If I was going to mm. have to put in 18 hour days or seven days a week, um, you know, I, I'd be doing it uh, to craft a business, which would be interesting, right. but it wouldn't be a business doing something that I loved. Right. It might be better than your corporate job for the, the stress reasons, but then you might have a whole other slew of issues as well. Oh, if, absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, so let's talk about the business itself. And it looks like it's kind of segmented in a lot of different ways. It's not just arcade. You have a bunch of other things in there as well. I think I was reading, you have um, some arcade stuff, you have pinball, you have console gaming, you have virtual reality. Um, so maybe just talk to all those together and how each of those fits into the current market that you see with kids these days and where they're gravitating towards. Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of different avenues, I'll say, for, for gaming-based entertainment. Um, you know, and one of the things that I wanted to make sure is that we had an inclusive gaming space. Um, you know, just because I enjoy a game uh, doesn't mean that, you know, that will speak uh, or resonate with the general public. Um, so I wanted to be careful to have an open mind uh, and get opinions from a lot of different people, uh, male, female, young, old, um, about, about what they enjoy and the types of experiences not, that they enjoy, not necessarily the games. Hmm. but you know, the types of experiences. So I could make sure that I have a little bit of something for everybody. So that way, um, you know, if a family of four comes in, um, that, you know, uh, mom and dad might be playing games from their youth while their kids, uh, you know, they, they prefer to play on consoles. How many times have you heard the phrase? I'm, I'm guessing it's gotta be a lot, but people walk in and they're like, well, I haven't seen this in 15, 20, 30 years. Oh, all the time. And every time I hear it, it makes me feel great because it makes me feel like I provided a space that's giving people uh, a bit of that nostalgia, a bit of that, you know, kind of freedom of youth uh, that they can tap into for a little bit. And I think, you know, that that's part of, uh, you know, why business has been uh, as strong as it has been, because especially coming out of the pandemic, um, you know, you get a lot of people that are going, you know what, I, I I, I want to make the most of my time uh, and I want to have fun when I'm not doing the things that mm. I have to do. Um, so when people come in and I see their eyes lights up and, and I hear stories, oh, I used to play this at, you know, Bob's Texaco, you know, five miles down the road from <laughs> right. my house growing up. And, you know, me and my buddies always you know, rode our bikes to the local pizza place. Yeah, you know, yeah. everybody's got a unique story and, and, and they're all very cool to hear um, because we all have stories like that. Anybody that grew up, um, you know, pumping quarters into machines, um, you know, and, and 
it's funny because as an adult and as somebody raising kids, you know, there are some times that I look at what my kids are doing and going, man, that's such a waste of time. <laughs> um, but, you know, I look back on those things that my parents probably thought, thought was a waste, waste of time. time and and it, it just brings back so many fond memories. Um, you can you can almost, uh, you know, taste, touch, smell, um, you know, where you were back in those days. Hmm. Um, you know, the more vivid, the, the more vivid those memories get. So I wanted to provide the space where everybody could feel like they were in their element. Hmm. Um, and it's funny because, you know, as I see customers walk in, uh, there are definitely people um, that resonate towards different eras of games. Um, we run birthday parties um, and most of the kids under 18 that come in, uh, they're all about, you know, gaming online on the consoles. Um, and it's funny because I, I've, I've seen it over and over again. Those old games are unforgiving. So some of these kids that have, you know, only played on consoles where, you know, you're given instructional levels and, you know, they kind of coach you on how to play as you're going through. And there's a lot of rewards along the way. The old ones don't have that. Um, you know, we grew up in an era where if you wanted to get better at a game, you got to get more quarters, um, you know, practice, be better, um, that type of thing. You have so, to have some, some shit in the game. Uh, absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. So, you know, it's funny because you see somebody go and they die in 20 seconds and they go and die 30 more seconds later. You know, they just throw their hands up and say, you know what, I'm just going to go back to what I know. <laughs> uh, but it's really cool when you do see uh, the six year old, seven year old come in, uh, especially with a parent, um, you know, and really start to take an interest in that in that old stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, it always kind of makes me smile uh, because, you know, we grew up in a, a different era technologically, but I do have a number of kids ask me, you know, okay, where's the pause button? Hmm. You know, like, no, no, no you, you don't you, take breaks. You're going <laughs> to <laughs> no bathroom breaks here. Absolutely. No, you need something to drink, bring a friend, <laughs> <laughs> grow your bladder. So I remember my gaming experience growing up was was almost nothing. We didn't have any console games. What we did have though was a couple of Pac-Man and um, a few other like Dig Dug that you would plug sure. plug into the TV sure. through the, the audio and the uh, the video cables, and you would just play there with the joystick. That that was the extent of what I did. Okay, and it wasn't all the time, but like I remember it. I and I like the I don't know the the simplicity of it for me was nice. Like when I Absolutely. was, when I walked through your place, once I gravitated towards granted, some of it definitely nostalgia for, for those games, Absolutely, but also the simplicity, like, it seems like there is simplicity in having one joystick, two buttons and being able just to, to live right there, as opposed to having a controller with who knows how many features going on there. Um, but I, that's what I was gravitated towards you growing up is there's gotta be a game that like was your thing. What was like your most nostalgic or your your game growing up uh my game growing up uh in, in the arcades was always frogger um you know i i don't know what it was i think it was because i i could do well enough per quarter that i could see myself getting better hmm. um so i tended to gravitate that way right uh you know pac-man i i tended to always die at the same spots hmm. um so you know i didn't i didn't put as many quarters in that one uh, but there were definitely certain games, certain genres. I mean, you know, I, I like playing, you know, some of the, the fighting games, Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter, things like that. Right. But when it came down to the people that were really good at those games, I didn't stand a chance. Right. So, you know, I had to maximize my investment by playing games that gave me the <laughs> feedback I was looking for. Yeah. Uh, Frogger, I 
I've only played a couple times, I think. Um, but my biggest memories, I mean, do you know, the Seinfeld episode of Frogger? Absolutely. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, it, it's, it's crazy how nostalgia is such a driving factor for this. And I've seen it in other industries as well. People have this connection to their childhood and almost from a marketing perspective, people always struggle. How do I get people to come in here? How do I, but nostalgia has to be one of the strongest pulls as far as being as a natural marketing mechanism. Absolutely. I mean, you look at it this way, um, you know, there's a lot of different places out there vying for your entertainment dollar across, you know, all different types of experiences. Um, but something that people connect with um, is going to be a big draw uh, because there's, there's, you know, when you make that personal connection, it, it's, it's, I'll say it's owned by the customer. It's it's different for everybody. So you don't put out a marketing plan and say, well, I hope this appeals to a mass audience. Um, it's one of those things where you put the experience out there. You, you put the, I'll say you, you, you put the visuals out there and mm -hmm. then everybody's going to connect a little bit differently to that. Right. Um, so really uh, their connection is the most powerful marketing tool that there is. So, you know, the key is as a business owner is trying not to step on that personal connection um, by I'll say framing things too tightly. Mm. Um, you know, the other thing that we see too, there's a lot of things going on out there uh, from an entertainment perspective that, you know, you have, say, a 40, 50 year old parent um, that has, say, a, you know, 10, 15 year old child that they might not necessarily have the same interests. They might not be able to go to a space mm. and both enjoy themselves equally. Um, so, you know, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to try and include um, you know, all the different types of gamers mm. so they could go through and, you know, it's funny because I'll have people come in, um, you know, and say, okay, well, we're going to play the old stuff for the first half hour. And then, you know, after, uh, after dad beats up on, you know, his opponent, then they go sit on the couches and the, and the kids get their revenge, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, it really kind of helps connect the generations between this is what I grew up with. And, um, you know, I, I think, it helps kind of humanize parents in some, in some points in their kids' eyes, like, hmm. Oh, you know, you, you actually enjoy this stuff too. You, you can, you're capable of it. You did stuff. You were a kid. <laughs> you didn't just, you know, you didn't just arrive as a parent, you know? So <laughs> right. I think it gives them a perspective and, and that's really cool. Let's, let's transition to the business side for a second. So in that transition from your IT job to taking this and, and moving in this direction, what practical things, would you say were super important to know? I always try to like to make some things tangible for people who might be out there listening, who might say, hey, I, I've always loved this thing. And they maybe just need the confidence or the push to be, hey, I'm also having stress for my job and I kind of want to maybe go a different direction. So from a, from a business perspective, what were some necessary things that you had to learn or things that were very important in getting that startup phase going? So, um, you know, I... I... I was pretty fortunate that I had uh, a fresh perspective in my mind. I actually didn't finish uh, my college education until I was about 42. Hmm. Um, so the pharmaceutical company that I was working for uh, was paying for me to go back to school. Uh, so I got a degree in business management 
And, you know, as part of that coursework, um, you know, they did a lot of things as far as, you know, entrepreneurship and small business. And, you know, just to touch on how all the different types of businesses function, whether it be a multinational global corporation or, you know, um, I'll say your, your own little space where it's mm -hmm. just you providing a, a service to somebody. Um, so that kind of helped me frame what I knew that I knew and what I knew that I didn't know. Um, you know, so that was the first step as far as, um, I felt like I had that background information, so mm -hmm. I didn't have to immerse myself in that type of research. I was also very fortunate. My wife's an accountant, oh, there you um, go. and I am definitely not an accountant. Mm -hmm. Um, but I knew that a, I was not going to put the bookkeeping on her because she already has a full-time job. Thank God. Mm -hmm. uh, we get our benefits through her. I mean, without her um, support and career, um, I don't know that this would be possible for me, especially right. with kids, uh, because obviously you have to have, especially with a heart issue, you have to have insurance. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, from the accounting perspective, I was able to bounce things off her and say, okay, you know what? Um, how do we handle this? And what am I looking for when I look for an accounting firm? Right. Gotcha. Uh, because one of the first things I did, um, you know, when I, when I started getting this thing started is I found a lawyer and I found an accountant, um, you know, because those are, those are two worlds that I don't play in. Um, so I needed to make sure while, uh, especially legal fees are expensive, um, it's a lot more expensive if you don't have, you know, that partnership with somebody. Um, mm. So those those were big keys. Uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll say the biggest thing for me that came in handy uh, was probably having the perspective of taking a business law course um, just to know where the pitfalls are. You know, the tough thing is when you when you go to open a small business, right, there is no handbook. There is no manual. Um, I know there are a lot of organizations out there to help you, but if you're really just starting out and you don't know anything about um, entrepreneurship or um, how to navigate uh, things, in, I'll say in this uh, world of legality and politics, um, you don't necessarily know the right questions to ask mm. um, a resource that does have all the answers, right? So I'll say that that having that background, like, and even if I didn't have that background, I probably would have uh, signed up to take something at the local community college. Um, you know, it, it, that investment pays off in spades, um, you know, just not having to pay people for that baseline. Right. And, and working in the consulting space a little bit, the, the best thing to do is build that team out. You know what I mean? It's like, as a, a business owner, as a solopreneur, as someone who's starting something on, on their own, it's important to have people who can fill in the gaps where you might not necessarily, Hey, I could do this, but it's not worth my time to do this. And I need that expertise of somebody else coming in to fill in those gaps of the whole business picture. Oh, absolutely. Um, and that's the thing, you know, I, I really, and it, it can be tough, um, you know, for people that I'll say are less likely to take themselves critically and probably important that if you don't or can't do that, um, to really have honest conversations with people close to you, uh, because ultimately the last thing you want to do is learn six months down the road um, that you thought of yourself in, in a light that I'll say the, the outside world doesn't see. 
Right. Um, so sometimes, you know, you need somebody to say, Hey, um, you're either going to need to gain some knowledge or it's really going to behoove you to get somebody on your side. <laughs> right. It goes back to that phrase. It's not personal. It's, it's just business. Right. Like we're trying to get things done here. We're trying to create a space for our customers, our clients, whoever that is. And I think what we're alluding to here really is self-awareness. What am I good at? What am I not good at? What should I be asking other people for? And also having the humility to ask for that if I don't have it. Um, I think that humility is huge, especially in starting a business. You're going to have to ask people for a lot of things. So yeah, you can get it done if you're very strong nose, but the road might be a lot harder to hoe if you're doing everything yourself as opposed to say, hey, listen, I don't know this. Who do I know who can help me out here? Oh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, that's one of the things being, uh, you know, I'll say middle-aged, you know, I already had a a pretty extensive network uh, through friends, family, coworkers, things Mm -hmm. like that in all different walks of life. And and I'll say that diversity, um, you know, these, these people didn't have all the answers, but they knew the people that did. Hmm. Um, And having a large diverse network to fall back on, Um, you know, that, that was one of the big keys, but I I wanted, I want to point out, um, I never had all the answers. I still don't have the answers every day. I'm learning things that I need to improve upon and people that I need to get on my team because I either don't have the interest or the talent, uh, to, to play in spaces that I should be playing in. That's a great point. I think people think that it comes to a head and like, okay, now I know everything. So I'm just gonna now I can just go ahead full force. But the, the point is that that's like the the fallacy here is that you're never gonna get to that point. No. There's always things you're gonna be picking up, adding on. So you really gotta get comfortable with the fact of hey, I'm gonna mess up, I'm gonna mess up again and again and again. And I just have to keep pushing forward, bring the appropriate people there with me and just keep moving forward. That's Every business that's ever started from all of time has been done that way. And I think it's something to be very cognizant of because especially if someone you're someone who's a procrastinator, it can be a, a death knell because you're just kind of waiting, okay, do I have all the pieces? Do I have all pieces yet? It's like, no, I don't. I got to learn this and this and this. And you just spend your, your time in this endless cycle of learning and trying to do things, but asking for help is so, so important. Oh, absolutely. And uh, you know, it's funny because... Uh, you know, I, I liken uh, starting and growing a business in a lot of ways to, you know, raising a, a child that's ready for the world. Hmm. Um, you know, so uh, one of the things that I had to impress upon my children, even uh, especially through the pandemic, through the uh, distance learning and things of that nature was they don't give out prizes for doing everything yourself. Um, if your personal pride dictates that you have to do it that way, I get it. Um, but you know, it was important to me that they knew, um, you know, hey, whether you do it with the help of, you know, a, a large group of people or you do it by yourself, the end result is going to be the end result. So why not make it easier? I know it's tough to admit that, you know what, I need help. Right. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things, though, I, I think if you find the right people, um, you can get that help and ask for that help without feeling like you've been demeaned or belittled. And if you right. feel that way with your team, the people that you're paying, you need to find new people. Exactly. Is there, how have you gone about this? I know, I'm sure a lot of it has happened naturally by just going through life. You bump into people, you find people who know, who have certain skills. Is there anything specific that you do to build your network? Um, you know, I, 
obviously the first thing is never build, never burn bridges. It mm -hmm. doesn't matter what age you are. The sooner you learn that, the better off you're going to be. Um, you know, so I'll say I've learned a lot. And a, a lot of it is from talking to people in sales and marketing, right? From people that are basically selling themselves as much as they are a product. Um, you know, I, 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 I've heard this tip a million times. People love to talk about themselves. Mm. So if you just say hello, give somebody a warm smile, a little bit of eye contact, they'll tell you their story. Right. And I'll tell you what, there's value in every story out there. You might not think it because it's not relevant to where you are today. But if you file that um, somewhere in your in your mind and you're open to that, um, you know, that 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 does wonders. Yeah, I think value in stories, value in in listening, kind of picking up on some of those lessons. And I'm hoping that that this is a little bit of what this podcast will provide. It'll provide people access to stories to learn to think about things this could almost be like a a virtual network if you will of, of resources to learn from other business owners from from yourself from everybody else who's already been on the podcast from all the future people as well it's that's what i'm trying to craft like you said you went to the um to college for that law that business law class yeah hopefully you know they they do things like that but hopefully this podcast can also be a resource for people who might have taken something away from what you said earlier hey hey that that was it. That was the unlock for me. The say, don't procrastinate, just go ahead, build a team. That was it for me. And that helped me to take that next step to go ahead and build this business. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I'll tell you what, one of the things that has been so important um, to, to, you know, our ability to not only start the business, but also survive through the pandemic, uh, the Main Street Business Associators, uh, Association, um, all the local business owners, um, you know, it, if you ask questions, people are willing to share their experiences. Um, you know, I think the last thing uh, that I found is that any business owner that I've talked to from a small business perspective, um, they're willing to tell you where they took their lumps because they don't want to see somebody else have to take them. You know, right. and, and I've found that, you know, while I'm very still new at this, only being two and a half years in, anybody that asks me for my perspective or, you know, uh, what do I think about X, Y, and Z? Um, you know, I'm, I'm more than willing to, to hopefully help them learn through my mistakes. So they're free to make their own mistakes uh, because, you know, there is no perfect path here. The perfect path is the one that you learn from with the least amount of damage. So let, let's, let's put the pedal to the metal here. Um, what are some of those biggest roadblocks and hardships that you've hit yourself? In over the past, let's say two and a half years that you've been in business? Sure. So obviously pandemic's a big one, right? So mm -hmm. I started a couple months before the pandemic, man, we were rolling. Um, I was having a blast. It was a lot of fun. Started staffing up, um, you know, and then of course everything shut down. And, you know, while that was tough, I'll say the tougher part uh, for me personally, for my business uh, was the fact that, you know, as an arcade, I don't offer any to-go services, right? So mm. there was no way to, you know, have non-contact purchasing. Um, so <laughs> you can't put can't put Frogger in the bag and no. Get it to somebody. And the fact of the matter is, is if I could, somebody would figure out how to do it without paying uh, money to 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 keep the arcade <laughs> right. going. So, um, you know, but that was one of the big things is you know you got to be able to expect the unexpected. Um, I was very fortunate in the fact that, 
you know, um, through my 25 years of corporate America, um, you know, I did have savings to fall back on. Um, you know, people talk about the, the paycheck protection loans and everything else that didn't do a lot for Main Street America. It kept our employees off of unemployment, um, but it really didn't help the business owners pay their bills. Um, so definitely, you know, uh, you have to be able to go in knowing uh, that you're probably not going to make money for a while and you have to figure out, OK, well, how am I going to pay my bills um, in my case? How am I going to make sure that my kids have access to the same opportunities they always did and don't resent my decision for opening my own business? Hmm. That was very important to me. Um, so, of course, that was the big one. Right. So that was the tough one. Um, but outside of that, um, you know, staffing, uh, especially a small business, can be hard. Um, one of the reasons being, you know, sometimes you don't need somebody for the amount of hours that they're going to want in order to be employed with your organization. Um, so you really have to, to, you know, sit down with pen and pencil and figure out, okay, can I afford to pay this person when I'm not making money? Hmm. Um, you know, and it's not, I'm not making money for weeks on end, but it's a matter of, okay, well, if I'm offering somebody part-time work and really I only need them for 12 hours, but they want 15, can I afford those three hours a week? Uh, when I'm not making money um, to pay them because it's important that they're here for the 12 that I do need them. Um, right. There are little things like that, uh, that, that seem to pop up and they start out as little things, but depending on the ebb and flow of the business, they can become big things if they're not addressed. Um, and that's one of the other things that I've learned fairly quickly is, um, you know, once an issue has been identified, it needs to be addressed right away because they only grow. So what have you seen from uh, talking about employees? What have you seen from um, your analysis over the past couple of years of what it takes to run a business of your size? Um, how many employees do you need? What what kind of tasks go into the day-to-day -day for them in, in the business of, a, of an arcade? Um, so, you know, honestly, uh, you know, when it comes down to what, what we do, um, it really depends from my specific business on how involved you want to be. Um, you know, obviously the more involved you are, uh, that's the less you have to pay people to do. However, um, you know, you have to be okay with being there all the hours that you're open. You know, you have to be, you have to be okay with being the fact that there is no person to call. You're that person. Um, you know, so when you make the decision to, to be that heavily involved in day-to-day -day operations, um, you have to make sure that you don't get burnt out and you're ready for what's to come. Um, but as far as my employees go, I'll say that, you know, most of the games themselves are, you know, fairly reliable. So as long as you can flip everybody, everything on, um, you know, really you need somebody, uh, I'll say that is interested enough in games that they kind of understand intuitively how things are going to work. Um, you know, I typically try and look for somebody that knows something about the games. Um, you know, I look for somebody that has experience in, you know, basically setting things up, um, you know, solving problems, especially with an interconnected world. Um, they need to be able to know, uh, you know, when the internet has gone offline, they need to know uh, a little bit about the potential problems um, so they can clue me in without me having to go and research every fire on the floor. Um, because 
if you're paying somebody uh, to help you, they, they need to be helping you. And that's one of the things that I've learned is I've hired some nice people, um, but they just don't have the knowledge that was advertised um, in the initial interview process. And it doesn't do you any good to hire somebody and pay them if they're not bringing value to that table. Mm. Um, so when it comes down to employees, it's just a matter of trying to get into a space in that interview where it's more of a conversation rather than just Q and a um, to try and figure out, okay, well, does this person have serious interest in this or are they just looking for something to, to, to make movie money? Right. Um, how have you, have you seen that process? I think a lot of people who move over from a corporate job or something else outside of doing a business on their own, they're not familiar with the inner workings of hiring somebody. What does that mean? Having that first conversation with a potential employee and being like, oh my gosh, am I doing this right? How do I, how do I handle this? So, um, was that, uh, like a paradigm shift for you and it has, have you kind of really just. Is it one of those things you have? You just have to do it. You just have to do it, and you'll see how it goes. Because I, there's really no way to know until you go through that process. Oh, there's absolutely no way to know. Um, I've had people that, you know, I said, okay, I think they could work. That end up knocking my socks off. Hmm. And I've had other people that that seem like they're going to be really strong, and I get excited about coming in. And uh, you know, they just need to be, uh, I'll, I'll say, guided a little bit more hmm. uh, than than anticipated. So, you know, it's just a matter of, I'll say, asking the right questions, right? So again, learning from failure. Uh, when I've hired people before, you know, that I've had, um, I'll say different wants than I realized um, to kind of make a, either a mental or physical note of that. Um, so I can address those issues during the interview and I'm not surprised, um, you know, coming in. So that's, that's a big part of it. And obviously, um, you know, anytime you're going to do anything retail, um, if you're going to be on the floor, you, you have to be willing and able to talk to people, um, you know, and, and, and that's a, a big thing for me is, you know, when I go to a retail establishment, um, you know, I feel much better about my transactions if somebody you know, engages me as right. an individual. You have inter interaction going on. Um, so, and that's where I feel small business really stands out hmm. um, because, you know, typically if somebody's running a franchise or something like that, the person who has the financial stake uh, in the business typically is, is hands off the floor. Um, and if the organization grows to a, a size where, you know, there's, there's segmentation between, you know, the people with the financial stake and then the, the people that are actually the face of the business, um, you know, that's where it can get a little bit tricky um, yeah. to know and to be confident, um, you know, that you put the right people in the right positions to be the face of your business. No, you're absolutely correct. I remember my dad used to um, say this whenever he would go to either restaurants or hotels, just by the way people spoke to him, the cleanliness of the place, he could tell immediately if it was a corporate or franchise establishment. Oh, absolutely. Because if it was super, super clean, you knew that the corporations wanted to keep everything kind of prim and proper and they compensated people well. On, on the franchise side, the the stakeholders weren't necessarily there. And they, they might have been like a couple of days a week, but you never really knew. But if something wasn't look quite right, the per, the front person has no stake in that business or it's not necessary for them to make the business look good. But the franchisee does. They can say, hey, listen, 
this does, it looks kind of dirty over here. I'm going to clean it up myself. Um, but that that's huge. That's huge. Is sure. even the presentation of your business to, to the public. The next thing I want to talk about briefly is I think people sometimes think that this transition from a corporate world to something that you love, like arcade, um, I think it's all sunshines and rainbows. So let me, let me know what you think about that. <laughs> and if in your experience, that's true, or, you know, if it still has its ups and downs. Well, it definitely has its ups and downs, but for me personally, the satisfaction of having a great day and, um, you know, I'll say having a satisfied customer base, um, you know, hosting people's, um, events, um, you know, it means a lot to them that, you know, the event that they've chosen to have the, at the arcade, uh, went well or better than expected. Uh, so I'll say owning that experience really kind of, I'll say that that's one of the things that is a severe up for me. Um, you know, as far as the downs, um, you know, anytime you deal with the general public, there's, there's always going to be, um, some people that, uh, have suggestions about how you could do stuff differently or more effectively and things of that nature. Um, you know, the key as, as a small business owner is to validate, um, what those people are, are trying to get across to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, you know, thanking, thanking somebody for having the interest to express their opinion, um, but not necessarily acting on it for reasons that they may or may not understand. Um, so when you get into those conversations that can be a little bit dicey, um, you know, it's just a matter of handling them with tact, um, you know, but as, as far as the down side of things, um, yeah, we definitely have downs and I, and I don't know any business, um, that at the end of a, a single month or a single year, um, you know, can't cite any downs. Right. So, right. um, you know, I, both, I, both, both, uh, financially and emotionally. I'm sure. Too. Sure. So, you know, it, it's, it's nice in the fact that, you know, I can set, uh, my hours and I set my hours based upon my, uh, anticipated financial success. Right. So, uh, I open and close when I think, um, you know, the general public is going to be most likely, uh, to be seeking out an entertainment option. Uh, with that being said, uh, I'm open every Saturday and Sunday. Um, my wife is off every Saturday and Sunday. Mm. Um, so there have been some times where we've had to have conversations about, Hey, I feel like I haven't seen you in a couple of months. You know, maybe we Mm. should figure out, uh, you know, how we can do dinner one of these days. Um, you know, that can be a little bit tough to juggle, right? So, um, when you do have, I'll say vacation accrued or sick days accrued in a corporate atmosphere, um, that's something that a small business, especially if you don't have a manager to run your day-to-day operations, um, it comes down to a calculation of, okay, well, if I take a sick day and I close today, um, how much money do I stand to lose? Um, and how many customers are going to be dissatisfied with the fact that they came to my establishment and then all of a sudden, oh, this guy's never open or any, you know, anytime I go there, this place always seems to be closed. Um, You know, their perception is my reality. So I have to be very cognizant of consistency. And, you know, a lot of that, if you're not willing to pay, um, you know, I'll say, somebody on either a salaried or, or even a consistent hourly basis, 
Um, you know, that's a trap that, that you have to look out for is, you know, you don't necessarily want to be married to the business. I love what I do, but I can't do it 24 seven. I still have other responsibilities outside of my business. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's your business. It's kind of like your, your life and your business are like two separate circles. There's, there's overlap, but you kind of want your life to be the bigger one. You don't want the business to necessarily over, overgrow the life, the life circle. Well, exactly. And that's the reason why I made the change was to get that balance back. Um, so, you know, I, I've been very deliberate about the decisions that I've made as far as the hours that I'm open and the hours that I'm there. Uh, the tough thing from my perspective is, uh, you know, I tend to try and give uh, high school kids their first opportunities uh, for work. Um, and being that is the case, um, you know, I tend to lose kids every couple of years because they're going off to college. And it's funny, I was having this conversation with somebody the other day. Uh, and I said, you know, it's, it's kind of a double edged sword. I, I don't want to hire anybody that doesn't have the ambition to do more. Um, but at the same point, I need somebody that's going to be okay, uh, to work 15 hours every weekend. Right. So, you know, it's which one do I think is more important? Um, and how does that all work? Hmm. The tough thing is finding the right person for that kind of opportunity and they're out there, but you, you can't settle. That's, that's one thing. Let's pivot for a second. Uh, Craig, what are we drinking here today? Uh, so we're drinking uh, Miller Lite. Um, I'm guessing this, this is a nostalgia play for you. So, uh, well, actually, it, it, it was a family thing. My father worked for uh, Miller Brewing Company for about 25, wow, 25 no way. years. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'll say uh, once I turned 21, it was kind of expected that I found something in that family. Um, if, if I chose to have alcohol, that it was something, <laughs> yeah. that, it was something that supported the family. So uh, tell me about the, the offering of Miller beers then, because I've never had someone who was so in the know on, on Miller. So it looks like I, I know from, again, I work at a brewery part-time. So I, I like, I like the craft beer scene. Okay. Um, all right, have you ever ventured into that space? But maybe first let's start with the Miller and see what I, I know we have Miller High Life. I know. Yep, absolutely. There, there's a ton of stuff. The interesting thing is, is, uh, you know, the, the, the beer industry, um, uh, over the last 20 years has gone into uh, such a cycle of consolidation. Mm. Um, you know, there are really only three or four large companies out there that own everybody. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, uh, Miller has a, has a bunch of offshoots, obviously corporate headquarters is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, lived there for about four years. I'll say anybody that works nice. for Miller for uh, a significant amount of time uh, does a stint in Milwaukee. Um, you know what's funny is the, um, uh, it didn't catch up to me until recently, but it was one of those things. It was just so commonplace that you just kind of glanced over it. The Milwaukee Brewers, like the brewer, the oh, team, absolutely. you know what I mean? I, like, I, 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 I'm like, I make beer, you know what I mean? And it's one of those things. That, oh, brewer. It's like, oh my gosh, brewer, like Milwaukee Brewers. It, it, it just, it's one of those things. Oh, absolutely. And if you go to a game, I mean, this is, I grew up back in the old County stadium days. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess it's called Miller park now. Uh, but yeah, even back then, uh, you know, you, Somebody would hit a home run and you'd have a big mustachioed man slide down a uh, big slide into a vat of beer. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's in the culture up there. <laughs> they still do that. Absolutely. They do it at Miller really? Park. Yeah, no absolutely. Way. Yep. That's something I got to say. I've never seen that. I've never seen that before. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on, on the taste of this beer? Is this, uh, is this a, 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 um, a flavor 
a flavor play for you or is this just a family heirloom? No. So, you know, uh, I'll say that, uh, you know, a lot of people when they, uh, when they first start trying to figure out what they want to do in a, in a social atmosphere, um, you know, in the early twenties, I tried a lot of different stuff, um, you know, uh, and, and to be honest with you, I, I never really stuck with, with hard liquor, mm. um, just wasn't my thing. Either the drinks were too sweet or the hangovers were too horrible. Yeah. Um, you know, so it was just one of those things. I just started trying a bunch of different beers and, you know, friends, uh, had different things that they like. I know IPAs were huge for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they still are, uh, but they were always too heavy and too bitter for me. Um, so I had a, what, what year was that? Oh, geez. I want to say that was back. IPAs is probably what late nineties. Yeah, for sure. I, I would, I would tell you this. I would say IPAs are probably the biggest they've ever been right now. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, that shows you how, uh, how outside that industry I'm in. If, if you go to like any craft brewery, at least the, a lot of the ones that, um, are fairly common people go to, it's pretty much, I would say 60 to 70% of the beers tend to be IPAs these days. Okay. So, um, you know, the funny thing is, is as, as I, you know, kind of started going through taste profiles and weight profiles, um, I'll say that I definitely settled on light lagers, mm. um, you know, and obviously, uh, Miller light being, you know, one of the first light beers out there that, um, uh, you know, the whole market and everybody in the beer industry said you know, back in the sixties, this is going to be a fad. Mm. Um, you know, no one, no one wants to drink light beer. Uh, next thing you know, you know, Miller light and then Coors light follows. And, you know, those are two of the biggest beers in the, uh, in the light space right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where, you know, I, I did have a stint in college right after high school, um, where I, where I probably had too many beers, um, you know, and that's when I really started to, to, to take a look at, okay, what's good, what's bad, what do I like, what do I not like, um, you know, and it just so it just so happened that I ended up really liking, uh, you know, Miller Lite from for a lot of different perspectives, right? It's not that heavy. Um, I find it refreshing when it's warm out. Um, you know, I can sit back and just have one, or you know, if I'm celebrating something, I can have more than one without uh, feeling horrible the next day. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it, I, I call it a utility beer, right? So no, absolutely, it's like the Swiss Army knife. You know what I mean? It's uh, you know anything that I want to do at that moment, I can I can uh, I can <laughs> do with with beer, whether it was beer pong back in my twenties or you know, just, uh, sitting around talking to all of our friends that are now old. Um, you know, I can do that with a Miller light in hand for sure, man. Um, the concept you mentioned earlier, inner child, I, I like that analogy, especially for an arcade gaming thing. Do you think that's something that is going to be more common going forward? And the reason I'm bringing this up is because with the emergence of businesses like yours that are more experience oriented, it also seems to dovetail a little bit with the, the comic world a little bit, the collectibles world, the sports card world. It all kind of has this, this special place. That's like a mix of nostalgia, um, nostalgia, childhood, all of this stuff kind of mixed together in your mind. Do you see that as a, bigger place going forward where people will spend more time? Uh, well, you know, it's, it, it's interesting. Um, I, I think the pandemic 
opened a lot of eyes uh, to a lot of different things, m myself uh, included, right? So, uh, you know, people that did work in cubicles five days a week, you know, I said, oh, man, you know, I wish I could work from home. Mm. And then three months later, they're crawling the walls, right? So <laughs> I, I think uh, from talking to a lot of people, you know, we've kind of arrived at the point where we're like, you know what, if we could mix the two, uh, I think that's where my best space would be. And when it comes down to this, um, you know, nostalgia space, uh, it's just a matter of what is the taste of the consumer going to look like in a world where, you know, you get uh, anything you want off of uh, Amazon or Walmart without leaving your couch. Um, you know, what are people going to find value in that they're going to want to go out and do? Because we know people don't want to spend three straight months in their homes. Um, so it's just a matter of what do people connect with? What are they looking to do outside of just the normal vacation space, right? So mm -hmm. Jersey Shore is going to be the Jersey Shore, you know, every summer. But if you're running uh, the type of business where you depend on people coming out and, and supporting you, um, whether that be uh, through experiences like what I offer, or even, you know, say, uh, you know, some of the mom, mom and pop type businesses on Main Street, it's just going to be a matter of, okay, have you connected well enough with your customers that you've created a value proposition for their time? So, you know, that, that's really what we're looking for. Now, it's funny because, you, you, you know, we talk about the nostalgia factor. The interesting thing for me is, um, you know, and I've given this a little bit of thought, especially as I went to open the business. The key is who has that nostalgia factor at any given time, right? So I, I, I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm in my mid-40s, right? So my, my oldest is about to go to college. Um, so a lot of those expenses, right. That we're going to go to daycare or different sports and athletics and travel and activities, those are starting to wind down. So what I'm seeing, uh, as far as customers that are coming in, they do have, I'll say a little bit more spending power and, you know, they're looking for that nostalgia factor as they start going through life. Um, I'll say in different stages. Um, so I think, you know, if you look back at trends historically, uh, you know, you do see people reach for that nostalgia factor. Now, for my generation, it just happens to be comic books. And uh, I'll say, you know, maybe uh, some some muscle cars, things like that. And, you, you, you know, if you look around the landscape, you know, and you see the Camaro come back and you see the Challenger come back and you see Marvel making, you know, billions upon billions of dollars in all these movies they're making. I think that's because they, they understand, um, you know, who is driving consumerism. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you appeal to that market, you've got a chance. It's definitely not guaranteed success, but you do have a chance. Now, the funny thing is, you know, I really should ask my parents what they did for nostalgia 20 years ago, uh, because I honestly that, don't really know. That, that's a great question. Um, and when I go back to think about it, I, I really don't know. Um, but I can tell you right now, um, the interesting thing in my mind, and I follow sports pretty closely. Um, I know that especially the NFL, they know that they've got an issue on their hands. Um, their average age for their season ticket base continues to get older and older every year. Uh, families are priced out of the market. And as such, if you don't have kids growing up to be athletes, 
most kids don't watch sports anymore. Hmm. They don't go to games because it's not affordable. When I was growing up, sports was an integral part of my experience. What was the cost of ticket prices back when you were younger? Well, the funny thing is, I think since I was like 10, 12 years old, when you actually had physical tickets that had pictures of, you know, athletes or different things on them, I kept a lot of my ticket stubs from, from my childhood. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking back at, you know, some of these games. And uh, back in the 80s and 90s, I mean, you could get, uh, you know, 10th, 14th row seats to a, a major league ball game for two fifty. Hmm. Uh, that's $2.50. <laughs> So, yeah, no, it's funny. I mean, I remember, um, you know, even back uh, when I was in high school, um, you know, I would go to uh, to devil games up in North Jersey and, uh, you know, they had a, a deal. If you were under 16, you got in for 10 bucks. Hmm. Uh, I think now in their new building, I think the cheapest decent seat in there is about 65, 70 bucks. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and I think that's part of the reason why, not to get off on a tangent here, but I think that's part of the reason why you see so much, um, you know, anger amongst the fan bases, because, you know, it means more when you're having discussions with your family or your wife about, you know, how we're going to spend our money. And, you know, you trying to get them to realize that, you know, this couple of thousand dollars that you're spending on a, a sports team, um, you know, how that impacts you, right. you take things more seriously when Absolutely. you, when you pay $200 for a ticket to a football game and your team loses. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to think a lot more about that than if you paid 20 bucks. That's a good point. It's like, even I think almost college could be viewed the same way. Absolutely. And take a price. It's like, what, what am I, what am I getting? What is the value proposition that like if every college across the country was, let's say, you know, 20, 20 or $30,000 a year. Granted, it's still a, a, a lot of money, but I'm saying it becomes much more stressful when you have to have that conversation about everything as far as, is this worth it? Am I getting in return what I'm, what I'm paying for it? Is this college education or is this sports game actually worth X or Y amount? Right. And that's, that's one of the things that, you know, when we look to set our pricing, not only did we look at the the market itself and and what different people's pricing models were, um, you know, but we also, it was important to us to create a value proposition. Um, And and I think, you know, I've heard a lot of people, uh, you know, say that, okay, yes, this is affordable for families. Uh, You know, so the tough thing is, um, and you hear people say it all the time, um, you know, being a small business owner in New Jersey is difficult. Um, you know, I've, I've been now through what, three Januaries, um, and New Jersey is raising the minimum wage, a uh, dollar an hour until we hit 15. Hmm. Um, so my, my hourly, uh, charge to my customers is eight fifty for an hour. So by the time we're going to be done, that means that, uh, for every person, uh, that's working the floor, I have to guarantee myself at least two people yes, yes. in order for them to be paid out. Otherwise I'm losing money by having them there. Right. So, you and, know, and that's just breaking even. Oh, that's breaking even on that employee. Exactly. Um, exactly. There's a lot more that goes into that calculation, obviously, Absolutely. but you know, when you take a look at while it is a variable cost, if you know that you're going to need a certain amount of labor hours per weekend, um, you start to look at it as more of a fixed cost. Hmm. Um, so when that cost goes up, 
uh, by, you know, whatever it is, 35% over a five year period, that's big. Mm. Um, you know, so that that's one of the things that you have to take into account when you try and create that value proposition is, you know, as that, as that gap closes between what your costs are and how you set your rates, um, you know, it's on that business owner or the financial stakeholder um, that 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 value proposition for them financially is going to shrink. So it's just a matter of, okay, well, you know, can we absorb this? Are we, are we doing, why are we doing this? Are we doing this because we love it? Are we doing this because um, we really get a lot out of it and we can afford to pay our bills doing it? Or are we doing this because we want to increase our wealth, um, you know, from a generational standpoint? And I'll say that, you know, in most cases, most people I've talked to, um, you know, <laughs> most people that start their own small business because they're looking to quote unquote, get rich, um, tend to be out of it fairly quickly. Um, you know, there are ebbs and flows, there are good and bad. Uh, but it's funny because I remember when I was talking to the Main Street community uh, about a prospective location in Medford, um, you know, the, 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 the remark was, well, welcome to the Thousand Airs Club, um, mm. you know, and it's, it's rung true. I mean, you know, uh, and we, <laughs> yeah. al we always joke about, you know, <laughs> with my kids, you know, it's like, well, when I, when I make my millions in the arcade, uh, you know, it, obviously that's just joking around. I mean, that, that's not the goal here. Um, but it's something that you do have to be cognizant of. When you think about your job now, I think a thing that people consider a lot is, do I love what I do? Doing what you're doing right now, would you say you love what you do? <laughs> well, the, the, the line that I've trotted out a couple of times was, you know, I don't have bad days. I play video games for a living. Um, you know, that that's the quick and easy short answer. But I'll tell you what, um, you know, obviously working with technology, when things go down, um, you know, and then sometimes things above my skill level uh, happen to some of these games. Um, yeah, it can be frustrating. And you, you take a look and say, okay, well, how much money do I have invested in this machine? Um, is it worth it to put more money in and fix it? Hmm. Or should I just scrap it, um, you know, sell out for parts or, you know, do whatever. Um, when things are going well, oh, yeah, it's a blast. Um, but, you know, when there are challenges, uh, it can it can be, you know, I'll say a little bit more difficult than advertised. What would you say if you had to just guess on either small business owners that you know or um, e even employees of, of larger companies? How many, what percentage of people would you say, I love what I do? Oh boy. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that I can put a number to it. I'll say that uh, the number is not big. Hmm. Um, you know, small business owners, I'll say, you know, it's definitely a labor of love. So in the small business community, I don't know of somebody that owns a business that doesn't love what they do doesn't mean that they love what they do all the time. Right. Um, but overall, that, that's a good distinction there too. Overall, they have more good days than bad days. And if they didn't, they wouldn't be in small business because there are so many things that happen behind the scenes. Um, you know, one of the things that you have to learn very quickly is, you know, I got in and I opened an arcade. 
But now I'm also human resources, I'm accounting, I'm legal, I'm sales and marketing. Uh, so I, I have to focus on things that are outside of the reason that I opened my business. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, I have to make it a, a conscious decision. Do I want to do this part of the business or can I afford to pay somebody else to do it? Right. Um, sometimes those decisions are easier than others. I know, uh, for me personally, uh, you know, finding a good payroll partner was important just because if you make an honest mistake in some areas of your business and payroll is one of them, it can cost you a lot of money down the road. So either you have to pay a lot of time, attention, and care to that process and invest a lot of your time into that, or you need to allocate the funds so that somebody else is doing it on your behalf. Yeah, I think when people get into business sometimes, you know, people get into the business for the purpose of solving a problem or some type of product or service that, that fits a niche in a market. So in your case, it's really filling that entertainment niche, which I feel like we've kind of seen a void of. Um, but when people get into the business, they're there to solve that problem. So in your situation, you're solving the problem of people not having access to some of these games. Um, but then there's that second layer behind where you're getting in, into business to solve this problem. But then there's all these micro problems that you as a business owner have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, whether that's legal stuff, whether that's accounting, whether that's um, hiring employees, whether that's payroll, what, what all those things that you really didn't sign up for, but you did and you didn't, you know what I mean? So Absolutely. It, it's, it's, you're basically problem solving day-to-day -to, -day to solve a larger problem. Me personally, um, you know, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, uh, when I worked in IT, one of the things that I found great joy in doing is figuring out solutions to problems that weren't existing, right? So thinking outside of the box, thinking creatively, you know, it kind of validated, um, you know, my intelligence to say, oh, well, here's a problem and there was no solution and we came up with something and knocked it out of the park, you know, so I'll say, the micro problems, as long as they're not, you know, machine gun in uh, <laughs> intensity, uh, you know, just solving all those things. A lot of this isn't rocket science. It's just making sure that you dot your I's and cross your T's. Uh, but, you know, anytime I feel like I can solve a problem, um, you know, I, I kind of count it as a small victory. Um, and, and I do enjoy that problem solving aspect. Obviously, you know, nobody wants to go, oh, man, what happened here? Um, but every one of those lessons that I learn along the way, um, you know, I just feel like I grow as an individual. Hmm. Um, I was never a great student, but I realized when I went back to school as an adult um, that I legitimately liked learning. I just needed to learn about stuff that I enjoyed. Um, and that's really what I've kind of focused on now is, you know, what's more enjoyable than building your own business from the ground up and, you know, and scrapping um, for that success, for that freedom that so many people talk about. Right. I think that's a great point. I think when people think about problem solving or learning, they automatically equate it to, I'm undertaking this large amount of work without understanding that maybe it's not me, maybe it's just the topics I'm learning about. And maybe some people have a better propensity to push through things and learn things they might not love, but hey, I'm here, I'm going to do it. Absolutely. So, you know, that's why I think, you know, we talk about this passion project and people 
doing things that they love, I think at the end of the day, if you at least have some inkling towards something, I think you'll tend to work harder for it. And if you can find those things, then I think you'll be much more likely to stick with it, to push through it in the hard times. I think the biggest problem that I see now is that people aren't being exposed to things enough to see if they like it or not. So it's, it's almost like they they go to college and it's like, okay, what am I majoring in? And this is the problem I'm going to be solving for the rest of my life. Well, that, that makes no sense. It's like, there's tons of other problems to be solved. You might like solving those problems better than like solving that problem. So it's like, how do we fix this though, as far as just exposing people to more things that they might enjoy solving problems for? Well, you know, just kind of like what we, what we spoke about sports and, and having the, uh, the amount of, I'll say financial resources thrown at a problem, right? As those financial resources increase, it increases the pressure. Um, and that's, that's a big thing uh, for, for people uh, that were, that are in the position I was, um, you know, 25 years ago, I had no idea what I want to do. Um, I actually just didn't start really thinking about that until I seriously started considering my own business. You know, it was funny because, you know, you always hear, ask yourself the question, well, if money weren't a factor, what would you be doing? Mm. I didn't have an answer to that question for decades. Um, and now if you were to ask me that question, I'd be doing the same thing. It would be on a grander scale, mm. um, you know, but I would be doing the same thing. Maybe I wouldn't be there all the time, um, but I would still be there. I would still want to make sure that what I've attached myself to is something that I'm proud of. Um, and, and if you talk to most small business owners, um, you know, I think that having that stake in things and doing things the right way. Uh, I think that means a lot to a lot of us um, on, on the main street side of things. So it's, it's very interesting when you talk about, okay, well, if I'm spending 50, 60, $70,000 a year for college, and I've got all this pressure to get these credits done in four years, uh, but I still don't know what I want to do. Uh, you know, the only thing I will say is, Life is a learning experience, right? Uh, just because you didn't learn it in college doesn't mean that you can't learn it. Uh, you know, I just say that one of the things that is so important is that you don't back yourself into a corner that you can't walk out of. Uh, it's amazing to me the number of people that I know uh, when they hit 40, 50 years old, they burn out of whatever career they're in and make a total 180. Hmm. Uh, the number of people that I know, and it's funny because I don't, I don't get that feeling from my parents' generation, um, that those were the things that happened. Uh, but now I just, I feel like there's more of a focus on being fulfilled in your career. And that as long as you do it intelligently, there is an avenue out there. Hmm. Uh, the, the local resources tech schools, county colleges, internships, things like that, where people say, you know what? Um, I'm tired of sitting in an office. I want to work outdoors. There are opportunities out there, but you have to think of it as an investment in yourself and an investment in your future um, in order to justify that financial spend, right? Um, yeah, the tough thing is when you're 20 years old, I don't know that it's fair to say this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, so 
Yeah, I, I think just not backing yourself into a corner that you can't walk out of is is probably the most important thing. Um, there's a great quote by, um, you know, Mike Rowe. Oh, absolutely. Uh, he has a great quote about passion projects and work. And I think people, when they think of passion projects, they think of something that they're going to, you know, enjoy 100% of the time, all the time. And they think that just because they're doing that thing that they're going to make money. And they don't even consider, oh, well, are you actually good at that thing? Yep. <laughs> so it's like all these pieces kind of have to come together. The the passion for something, the, the the physical and mental ability to do that job well. And so his quote was, you know, you don't always have to follow your passion, but you should take your passion with you wherever you go and seek opportunities that might come along. So you can't just quit your job and become a scuba diver instruction if, if, if there's no money there because you have a family to support. There's other things that you have to do in your life. But if you can take that with you along the way and look for opportunities as they present themselves. So, Hey, maybe I can do this. Maybe I have a job at the beach and I can do this part-time now. And I slowly move into that. You're seizing that opportunity where you see fit. I, okay. I can do this for two days a week and maybe I move that to full-time eventually. Um, but it's just an interesting conversation because I think sometimes people they, there's a disassociation with what they think their passion is, and is that even viable as a potential source of income earning? Well, and, and here's the thing. So I'll say that it probably changes depending on what stage you are in life. I know when, you know, when I was younger, um, you know, I was always brought up that no matter what you do, um, you know, do it your best. And that's one of those things where even if I felt like I wasn't where I wanted to be, um, I'll say I was still able to learn from being in those spaces because just giving it your all and finding out where you succeed and where you fail and what you need work on, um, you know, if you give it your all, no experience is without worth. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that's what that that's what Mike's talking about there is basically you know, if you're not invested in something, uh, it's really not worth doing because you're not going to succeed because eventually, you know, those bad days are going to add up and you're just going to throw up your hands. Yeah. Um, so it's important to know that if you're giving it your all, you might not realize it at that moment, but 10, 15 years later, you might look back and say, you know what, that experience ended up being really valuable. I couldn't see it then. Hmm. but I see it now. Hmm. That's great. That's a, that's, it's a great point. Um, and how does that translate? Would you say to where you're in right now? What were there? I guess, I guess those experiences early on of you playing video games were somewhat formative in you making the decision to ultimately go off. And so in that decision to, to really pivot this direction, would you say that is, solely based on a passion or something that you just loved, or is it a combination of passion with there's also a void in the market currently for this service? So, you know, one of the things that I looked to do when I was looking around at prospective things that I thought I might be interested in, in the research process, um, things that I like to do, but also things that I knew I enjoyed and, and things that, uh, I could help people with, hmm. but combined with that, I needed to make sure that it was something viable and to make sure it was viable. 
Um, you know, I did go through the exercise of building a business plan and doing a SWOT analysis, um, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, threats uh, to make sure that I wasn't missing anything, right? Uh, you can succeed with competition, but it's a lot easier to succeed if there's not over competition. Uh, so part of the reasoning for my location, um, not only is it close to where I prefer to live, um, but it's also in a location where I knew the economic profile was where it needed to be. Uh, you know, I thought that there, there was an underserved community as far as entertainment goes. Um, so there were a lot of opportunities on that SWOT analysis. Um, you know, but one of the things that I did list as a threat is, you know, if you get a mega corporation uh, that starts to invest uh, a little bit closer, um, you know, a Dave and Buster, so to speak, um, you know, that type of thing that, yeah, I mean, that that is a losing proposition for mm -hmm. uh, a, a small business like me, um, you know, and we have seen other arcades come and go through the area, um, you know, within about 30 miles or so. Um, and I think 30 miles is probably about that magic number where, you know, there's enough room for all of us in that space. I really think that, you know, if somebody took a, a good hard look at, uh, at opening, um, you know, something similar, um, I would really take that kind of as a shot across the bow, um, that they might think that they have an opportunity to exist in a space because I'm not doing something correctly. Hmm. Um, so, you know, really what it comes down to is, do you have the passion to get you through the days that aren't your best days? And do you have the opportunity to at least give you a fighting chance? Well said. Um, I want to go into a, a, our quick question round. So at the end, we kind of, we kind of do a couple quick questions just meant to be like, you know, quick answers of just, just get a pulse on what sure. things are. Absolutely. Um, so what is the coolest thing you've seen lately, either in gaming or otherwise? <sighs> well, I just came back from, uh, from Florida. Uh, we were down at Universal Studios and that nice. Rise of the Resistance ride. That's pretty cool. Man. <laughs> I was down there a couple months ago and um, I was at the uh, the Harry Potter ride. Absolutely. And it was the, was it, it was the Hagrid's. Um, oh, that was awesome. Crazy. Good, right? Oh, so good. I, I would have to, honestly, I've been on a, a decent amount of roller coasters. I would say that is, has to be probably number one or two. Yep. That was. Oh, Absolutely. And it was, it's crazy because it wasn't just, oh, this is so fast or this, is, it had everything like the dimensional aspects of going to different spaces, going forward, backward. It had, it had a, the full package, I would say. Well, and it definitely not to spoil it. So I'm not going to say exactly what happened, but there was an element on that roller coaster uh, the, that I had never experienced on a roller coaster before. <laughs> God, I know uh, what you're talking about. So from that perspective, I was like, man, you know what? They really did it right. Yeah. Um, what are the most transformational changes that you're seeking to make both personally and professionally in the next 90 days? Oh, geez. Um, so transformational changes professionally. Uh, I don't know if I'd call it transformational, but obviously, uh, you know, just learning more about the technology in my business, hmm. um, as, as technology changes, uh, you know, staying on top of that. That's a huge thing. And that lifetime learning um, credit, I'll say that there's nothing that I've typically looked at that, you know, has been like a complete 180 since I've started this thing. Right. But I'll say it's these gradual changes that end up transforming the way I do things. Gotcha. So that's what I'll say from a professional standpoint, from a personal standpoint. Oh, geez. Uh, 
you know, I, I think a lot of it is just as, you know, my kids get older, um, you know, being flexible enough to relate to them as they continue to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've always said, I think parents have a wheelhouse where there's a certain range of ages that they really love. Um, you know, I was not a big toddler guy. Uh, didn't feel like I could connect, <laughs> could connect with my kids now that they're teenagers, while the problems do get bigger um, or can get bigger, I'll say, um, I feel like I'm able to relate to them more hmm. and just being somebody that they feel that they can relate to being open. Uh, that's a constant work in progress. Um, you know, being, being human uh, to people that uh, hopefully look up to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and are there any habits that you currently have that really impact your ability to run a business well? Uh, geez, negatively. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's stick with the positive mm-hmm. ones. All right. So um, I love talking to people. Mm. That's a big one, right? So making that interpersonal connection. I think that's where a lot of things start uh, for any business on Main Street. You know, obviously some businesses you need it more. If you're going to be a bartender and you don't like talking to people, you're in the wrong career. Right. Um, but I think being open uh, to that connection and and really kind of listening to what people are looking for, whether that be in the immediate space or whether that be in the future, you know, mm-hmm. just keeping an open mind, listening to people and and taking mental notes of, of what my customers really value. And finally, what is your favorite beverage? <laughs> well, uh, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm a big ice water guy. That's um, good. You know, so I'll say that that's that's one of the changes uh, with the doctors I was able to yeah. make fairly easily. Um, you know, I was drinking a lot more water instead of soda and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> and but, by, by ice water, do you mean Miller Light or no? No, I, I, I mean I'm, actual. I'm, okay, yeah. I mean actual ice water. But you know, once once we hit that uh, five o'clock hour. <laughs> Um, you know, I probably could use a few less Miller lights. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Craig. I really appreciate it. Um, thanks for taking the time to do that. Um, so I'm going to give you the next 30 seconds or so, uh, just to let the people know if there's any final thoughts that you have or anything that you want to plug. I just wanted to say thank you for having me on. Uh, I always like talking, uh, to people about experiences and, and there's so much out there to offer, um, just by, listening to people. I think that's a huge thing. Hopefully we can do that more as people. Um, I'd like to say, you know, this has been a great experience and, uh, you know, if you guys are looking to come out and have some fun, play some games, game on arcade is at 32 North main street in Medford, New Jersey. Cool. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you're not yet a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, and all major platforms. If you want to write to us, our email is leverage and beverage at gmail.com. And if you follow us on Instagram, it's at Leverage and Beverage. I'm Greg Sobosinski, and you've been listening to Leverage and Beverage. As always, keep pushing forward one sip at a time.